You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing pornography and why some religious communities are opposed to porn and worried about its place in American society. For what reasons do various religious groups object to pornography? Why are evangelicals in particular worried about masturbation and sex addiction? And what do battles over pornography reveal about America's current cultural and political climate? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Kelsey Burke. She is the author of the new book out this July called The Pornography Wars, The Past, Present, and Future of America's Obscene Obsession. You can read an excerpt from her book in the upcoming summer issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Kelsey. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? Hi, Brett. I'm doing fine. How are you? Great. Thank you. So your book is called The Pornography Wars, and that title seems like a great place for us to start our conversation. What are the pornography wars? For those who aren't familiar with debates about pornography, what are some of the battles over pornography and what are the issues at stake? I like to think about the pornography wars as being like a really long marriage. So The details and events may be different given the year or the decade, Mm. but there are these recurring themes within conflicts that rise to the surface. So these recurring tensions that are always underpinning public debates over the proper role of pornography Mm. within American life. And in the United States, these battles date back a really long time, really to the time of the Civil War. Hmm. Of course, there has been sexually explicit media around long before then, but the Civil War is kind of this catalyst for conservative activists to really try to push for the regulation of what they called obscenity. Hmm. Um, And then, of course, there were others who were pushing back against their efforts. And back then, as is still true today, the pornography wars weren't really about pornography, but instead are about this tension between religion and sexuality within society, um, or really what moral or religious beliefs should be allowed to guide both the culture and also the law. So in today's debates, I think we see two broad battlefields to continue this war metaphor. The contours of these are, are new due to changing technologies, but we can still see how they're relics of debates that we've seen in the past. So first, there are disputes over the pornography industry itself. So whether and how it harms performers, particularly women, and what we should do about that. So the modern day anti-porn movement has really morphed into what it calls itself anti-sex trafficking movement. Hmm. Um, But their focus is not just on people who have been um, forced into sex work or into porn without giving their consent, but really all people in porn, because they don't believe that sex work can be anything but exploitative. Hmm. So that's the sort of first arena over the industry itself. And second, there are debates over the consumption of porn or watching pornography, especially on the internet. So Mm -hmm. is it bad for you? Um, What does it mean when teenagers 
see internet porn before they have formal sex education? Hmm. Can it be addictive? We know, so for example, in 2016, the GOP added to its platform really strong language saying that internet pornography is destroying the lives of millions. Hmm. Um, There have been 16 states that have passed resolutions that call pornography a public health crisis. And this all goes back to concerns that watching it is causing significant harm. Fascinating. Thank you for that great overview. So as you mentioned in your book, you do trace the rather long history of Americans' obsessions with criminalizing and regulating pornography and quote-unquote obscene material. So generally speaking, for people who have wanted to outlaw pornographic images and movies, what have been their main concerns? What have they worried will happen or is happening if pornography is legal and readily available as you've been studying the history of all this? Well, generally speaking, the anti-pornography movement as it existed in the 19th century all the way up to the present moment is a conservative movement. So the interest is in preserving the status quo and resisting progressive social change. Mm. So we could look at like the talking points of anti-porn activists in 1873, and Mm. they would really be quite similar to those we hear today in 2022. So Mm. American society is crumbling. We lack a moral foundation. We need to restore Christian values in both the culture and the law. We need to protect women and children. All of these ideas have been around for a really long time. Anthony Comstock, who takes the credit for some of America's earliest obscenity laws, uh, which are often referred to as the Comstock laws. He was born in the 1840s. He died in 1915. His beliefs were pretty extreme. So he opposed any and all depictions of nudity. So this includes in like classical artwork, uh, in medical or anatomy textbooks. He opposed all forms of contraception and women's voting rights. And of course, he also opposed pornography. Um, If we fast forward 150 years to today, and we'd see people like J.D. Vance, who's the GOP candidate running for Senate in Ohio, make really similar claims, uh, like in his call to completely ban pornography. But the difference is that in 2022, and really since the 1960s and 70s, the U.S. courts have been relatively consistent in distinguishing pornography, uh, so long as it takes place between consenting adults, Mm -hmm. is a legally protected form of speech. And this is different from what the courts call obscenity. So this I found to be pretty confusing early on in my research. One of the first anti-porn events I attended, which I call in the book, the Freedom from Sexual Slavery Conference, that's a pseudonym to protect the Mm. attendees. Um, There was a speaker there who was insisting that pornographers were breaking the law and that they needed to be prosecuted. But Hmm. what she was doing and what other anti-pornography activists who are calling for the outlaw of pornography is that they're conflating pornography and obscenity as one and the same. But in fact, Obscenity is a special class of material that's determined using something called the Miller test or Miller standard, which is really a very subjective standard that has made obscenity notoriously hard to prosecute since that standard was developed um, in 1973 with a Supreme Court case called Miller v. California. But there are still those in the anti-porn movement who, who think internet pornography in particular should be considered obscene. 
Interesting. So I want to um, pivot just a bit because you make what I think many of our readers will find to be an interesting point in observation, which is that it isn't only conservative religious people who are opposed to porn. And you say in the book that there are, quote, religious conservatives, feminist and secular millennials concerned about the impact of pornography on society. So we'll talk more in depth about religious conservatives momentarily. But let me ask you briefly, how would you describe some feminists and secular millennials concerns about pornography? I'm glad you asked that question because absolutely, even though I think it's very clear that Christian conservatives have sort of been leading the fight against Mm. pornography, they're not the only group that opposes it. So Mm. since the 1970s, feminists have mobilized to oppose pornography. Indeed, this was really at the heart of the feminist sex wars of the 1980s, um, whether pornography always and inevitably exploited women. Anti-porn feminists today don't make up the same kind of an organized movement movement as they did in the 1970s and 80s. But really, their concerns are still the same. And they've centered around how pornography harms women, which they say it does in a very literal way by often forcing or coercing women into scenes that are mm-hmm. violent or degrading, mm-hmm. um, for which they, you know, according to an anti-porn feminist view, cannot take pleasure. And that pornography also harms women by glorifying rape culture and reducing women to sex objects. Mm-hmm. The other group I write about in the book that I sort of call it with a shorthand, secular millennials, um, this is a group that I describe who are mostly men who are taking a stand online against watching internet porn because they believe it's physically addictive. They often describe it as being very similar to like a chemical drug, and it's gotten in the way of their lives and real life sexual relationships. So there are a bunch of really large and active websites such as NoFap and Reboot Nation Um, where people use this addiction language to commit to sobriety from pornography and they document their journey um, in recovery, as they call Hmm. it. Hmm. Interesting. Well, then let's talk specifically about religious people. You note that among the religious people you met while doing research for your book who were opposed to pornography, that many were evangelical Protestants, others were Roman Catholic, and others were Latter-day Saints or Mormons. Were there differences among these religious groups in their opposition to porn, or did they generally oppose pornography for similar reasons? And if so, what are those reasons? Historically, there were definitely differences. So Protestant groups tended to focus more on reforming the law at both the state and federal level. Um, Catholics focused their efforts more locally. So for example, boycotting theaters that were playing Mm -hmm. films with content that they deemed inappropriate for public viewing. Mm -hmm. Um, And historians have explained that this difference really emerged at the late 19th and early 20th century where Catholics were subject to political discrimination at the hands of um, government officials. And so they were really less inclined to want to involve themselves in formal politics and instead focused on their local communities. But back then, as is true today, the underlying logic that motivated both Protestant and Catholic efforts to oppose porn um, was really similar. And I think we see that today where there's this conservative sexual politic that Mm -hmm. really transcends any theological differences. So that is the belief that pornography is 
morally wrong and that sex is sacred and something that we are in need of protection. And so I think we see this in all kinds of debates, mm-hmm. um, not just having to do with porn, but having to do with LGBT rights, having to do with abortion and reproductive mm-hmm. rights, where we see a similar coalition across conservative Christian groups. What I encountered in my research when it comes to porn that I think is interesting is that religious activists today really insisted that their motivations were not fundamentally religious. Even if their personal religious faith sort of motivated their actions, that they believed that their rationale or their logic for opposing porn did not have to do with religious beliefs. So for example, when I interviewed Christians who participated in porn addiction recovery groups, so whether they were evangelical or Catholic or Latter-day Saint, they all used language that distanced their position from pornography being a religious or moral issue and talked about it in really medical and scientific terms. So how it's physically harmful to Hmm. their bodies. Another example of this just at the organizational level is the group the National Coalition on Sexual Exploitation, um, the acronym is pronounced NICOSI. Um, This is a group that was formerly called Morality and Media. It huh. got started in the 1960s by a group of ecumenical clergy and was more explicitly religious in its identity. But today, NICOSI likes to advertise the fact that it is technically at least non-religious, non-partisan, hmm. but it's still a group that is led by Christians, mostly evangelical Protestants. Interesting. So then let's hone in with where you just left us there with evangelical Protestants. I remember that following the shooting in Atlanta last year, where a man targeted Asian women in salons and massage parlors, that the media reported that the killer had attended an evangelical church and may have believed that he had a sex addiction. And then from reading your book, it does seem that evangelicals are especially concerned about masturbation, pornography, and sex addiction, as you've mentioned. So why are evangelicals so concerned about masturbation and porn? What do we need to know about the world of evangelicals or their worldview to understand their heightened anxiety over masturbation and pornography? That's a great question. The Atlanta shooter did claim to be a sex and porn addict. He Hmm. reportedly received treatment at an outpatient facility that specialized in um, sex addiction recovery therapy. And he, as a white Protestant man, is among this group that is actually the most likely to perceive themselves to be addicted to pornography, Hmm. even when this is a group that actually tends to use it less often than men of other religious affiliation or, or men who have no religious affiliation at all. So the sex addiction recovery movement itself does not have strictly religious origins. So it stems out of the broader addiction recovery movement of the 20th century. So Hmm. its origins are in Alcoholics Anonymous in the 1930s. The first sex addiction support group was started as an offshoot of AA. Hmm. It was called Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, SLAA. It was started in the late 1970s. And one of its members, a man named Patrick Carnes, um, who's said to be sort of the father of the sex addiction recovery movement, developed a 12-step model to deal with what he called sex addiction. It wasn't explicitly religious in its 
sort of modeling. Um, But it wasn't very well received among other professionals who were dealing with sexual problems at the time. So the entire field of sexology and really sex therapy developed around the idea that we shouldn't stigmatize sexuality. And so their goal is sexual freedom, Mm. not additional abstinence and control. Yeah. But there was one group for whom this sex addiction model did really neatly align with their existing worldview, and that was conservative Christians for whom there's you know a lot of messaging and support around abstinence and control, that these are really sort of core to their beliefs about sex. So the idea that some sexual behaviors became problematic was something that Christian leaders could really easily get behind. So evangelicals have taken up this language of porn addiction, sex addiction, to reinforce their broader beliefs about gender and sex. And today, I write about the the Christian pornography addiction treatment industry, and it truly is an industry. So there are books, there are support groups, workshops, conferences, um, apps where you can track days of sobriety, software Mm. programs you can download to send your internet history to an accountability partner, all to help you avoid the temptation of looking at porn. And I think this stems from an evangelical Christian culture that's really obsessed with sexual sin, Mm. and it makes it seem like any looking at pornography might reveal some underlying addiction um, because it's an action that takes place outside of, you know, what conservative Christians deem appropriate sexuality, which is really limited to heterosexual monogamous matrimony. Well, then staying with evangelicals for just a bit, are there differences with regard to gender and how evangelicals view all of what we've been talking about, masturbation, porn, sex addiction, or do they treat women differently than men when it comes to all of this? Yes, absolutely. So within evangelical culture, almost all messaging about sexuality is really deeply gendered. So there are differences when it comes to how they understand sexuality for men compared to women. One of a a core evangelical belief is that men and boys have sexual desires and urges that are natural, but that they're also very strong. And so especially teenage boys, need to learn how to control those urges outside of marriage. So there's a lot of talk about science within these Christian circles and about biology and brains and how men's brains are, quote unquote, wired to be attracted to things like pornography Hmm. and for them to have a higher sex drive than women. Hmm. So this language really normalizes the fact that Many evangelical men do look at porn or at least want to look at porn. Mm -hmm. It helps explain when men have what they call setbacks or slip ups that Mm. even though it's they're supposed to be fighting against the urge, it's understandable when they succumb to Mm. that temptation. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to women, evangelical messages are really different. So women are believed to be fundamentally different creatures from Mm. men. And Mm -hmm. this comes from an ideology that I don't think is is just present within evangelical Christian circles, but within evangelicalism, it's called gender complementarianism. This is the idea that women fulfill different roles than do men by God's design. And one of the ideas is that women are thought to desire emotional connections and relationships more than desiring visual stimulation, like through pornography. So most evangelicals would believe that really by God's design, women don't want to look at porn. Hmm. 
But of course, many women, including Christian women, do look at it or want to look at. And so most people that I interviewed would mention this fact that, oh, of course, there are some women who also struggle with pornography addiction. But they really framed these women as the exceptions rather than the rule. Hmm. And they almost always talked about these women as having had something gone wrong along their journey. So Mm -hmm. often women were described as having had something happen to them, Mm -hmm. often in their childhood, that they're this deviation and really pathologized within their communities for wanting Mm -hmm. to look at pornography. Um, There are some Christian women who are trying to, to change this, but really I think that the messages about women's sexuality are almost the opposite of evangelical messages surrounding men's sexuality. Interesting. So staying with women for just a bit, and then I also want to ask about the addiction treatment facilities that you mentioned. So as part of your research, you attended a retreat for, quote, Christian women whose lives have been harmed by sex and porn addiction. Can you tell us what does that mean? Is that mainly not only women who may think they have a porn addiction, but who are in relationships with men, a husband or whatnot, who they believe that male in their life has a porn addiction and it's harming their own lives? And so if you could talk about that, and then also, what would you say takes place in these evangelical programs to help people who believe they have a porn or some type of sex addiction? Sure. Well, this was a really interesting event for me to attend as a researcher. You know, I messaged the organizer, explained my project, asked if I could attend. It was a conference that was geared toward Christian women whose lives have been affected by sex or porn addiction. I was allowed to go, you know, presumably, I I think because I also was a woman, I asked if I could observe events or small groups for men from Mm -hmm. various different Christian communities and was repeatedly told no, that my perspective and position as a woman would interfere with the group dynamics. Hmm. So I went to a conference that was a part of a national organization that I call in the book True Intimacy. And they actually have three different kinds of curriculum, Christian curriculum, for men and women that are used in small church groups having to do with um, sex and porn addiction. So there's one set of curriculum for men who struggle with sex or porn or masturbation addiction. Mm There's one for women who struggle with these addictions. And then there's one for women who are partnered to men who are presumably sex or porn addicts. So there there isn't a curriculum for men whose partners are sex or porn addicts. So I asked about this, and one of the organizers explained to me that chances are, if, if men are partnered with women who are struggling with sex and porn addiction, that these men are also struggling with those issues in their own lives. So hmm. they would just send them to the, the men's curriculum. But for women, this event that I attended was for both women who would consider themselves to be sex or porn or or masturbation addicts, and those who had been betrayed by their partners. And when I asked about this, the staff I interviewed said that, yeah, it maybe wasn't an ideal scenario, but that they would never have the numbers to put on an event only for women who struggled with sex addiction. So they lump all these women together. But then they did rationalize it by talking about how you know, this really actually works out okay because all women have something in common as women. So again, going back to this gender complementarian ideology that assumes women are different from men Mm. all in similar ways. You also asked about sort of what does Christian porn addiction treatment look like? Most support groups are set up in really similar ways. They often follow a 12-step model and they always weave together 
Christian beliefs, so like by including Bible passages to reflect upon alongside these lessons in so-called science. So there's often little sketches of the brain and how it works Hmm. to say that the brain is affected in a physical way by sex and pornography. So in this way, I think that these curriculum really merge together, this belief in God and biology as kind of being one and the same, that Hmm. God created men's brains in particular to be wired to pornography. And so in order to overcome this addiction from the Christian perspective, but also more broadly in a sort of addiction recovery model that addicts have to surrender to God or this higher power to help them on the journey to sobriety. Mm -hmm. So groups are holding people accountable, but they're also taking the shame and blame out of what they call sexual sins. Fascinating. So I want to return to something you mentioned briefly earlier and ask you to um, expand a bit on it. So alongside opposing pornography, conservative Christians have been rather concerned with sex trafficking. And you say in the book that the movement against sex trafficking is both a relatively new movement and one that is almost entirely led by conservative Christians. So why have conservative Christians become concerned with sex trafficking? Sex trafficking as a term is relatively recent, so it was first used in the 1970s, we think. But fear over what activists have called sexual slavery Mm -hmm. um, is much older than that. So the FBI's first director, a man named Stanley Finch, he was almost obsessed with the idea of young white women being kidnapped and forced Mm -hmm. into to prostitution. This Hmm. is around the same time in 1910 that Congress passed the White Slave Traffic Act, um, which made it illegal to transport women across state lines for what they called immoral purposes. Hmm. So now, a century later, sex trafficking has become a way, I think, to attract broad support for the anti-porn movement when Today in the 21st century, most Americans do believe that pornography should be a protected form of speech. Mm. But the vast majority of us would say that it is absolutely wrong to force someone into servitude, sexual or otherwise. So it's much more acceptable to take a firm stance against sex trafficking Mm -hmm. rather than a firm stance against pornography. And I think we see this not just within Christian circles. So New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof, for example, has said that he's not anti-porn, he's anti-porn hub, because that is the largest free internet porn streaming website that has permitted video of illegal actions, including trafficking and child abuse, to be posted to the site. But we do know that the most powerful and active and well-funded groups that are mobilizing against sex trafficking are led by conservative Christians. So if you follow the trail of recent legislation having to do with sex trafficking, um, even if this seems not religious, they often have these connections to evangelicals. And, you know, this is a group that has been mobilizing for a very long time to oppose, again, not just sex trafficking, but all forms of sex work. This is a term that they actually avoid entirely and Hmm. instead prefer for prostitution or trafficking as kind of the umbrella terms because they see all sex work, even if it's a woman's chosen career path to be fundamentally exploitative and harmful. 
Well, then for our last question, I'd like to ask you, what does studying pornography and the battles over it reveal to you about American society and our current cultural and political climate? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, as a sociologist, I consider myself to be a sociologist of religion. And so I wouldn't write a book about pornography unless I thought that it said something really important about this broader landscape. So I Hmm. hope one of the takeaways is that people are able to disentangle when public discourse is really about porn or when it's actually being used as a kind of dog whistle for something else. Mm. So like the recent House bill that passed in Florida that's been dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill. Mm -hmm. um, This is a bill that was written and framed around concerns over pornographic material that the governor insisted was showing up in public elementary school libraries. I think it's pretty obvious that this bill isn't really about porn. So Mm -hmm. it marginalizes and criminalizes any reference of queer identities. And so we see this much more broadly that so often these battles over watching porn or making porn are really about what values should guide us as an American society, the role of religion in public life, um, even whose stories do we believe as truth or fact. So I think debates over porn are reflective of a much broader political polarization. Like that feels very obvious, an obvious thing to say. That feels kind of ubiquitous, this polarization. But Mm. I I will say that one of the things that I found surprising time and again in my research is that there is actually more common ground across the porn wars than many of us Mm. believe. So the anti-porn movement talks a lot about protecting women from pornography's harm. But in fact, sex workers, porn performers, and their allies also want to protect women and other Mm. marginalized groups from abuse and exploitation within the industry. And they have actually been setting up organizations and support networks to do that work. Both sides think it's very important to talk directly to kids about porn, to not avoid that topic. Both sides say that it's a bad idea to watch porn in secret. So um, Hmm. for anti-porn folks, you know, that's because it would likely signal some underlying addiction. But for porn positive people, they would say that this secrecy contributes to shame and stigma surrounding sex work. And so Hmm. that's not a good thing. So I think... I hope that all of these examples suggest that there might be more room for dialogue and empathy than we might think at first glance, even across these these really contentious political issues. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for your fascinating research and this conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Kelsey Burke. You can find an excerpt from her new book, The Pornography Wars, The Past, Present, and Future of America's Obscene Obsession in the Revealer's upcoming summer issue at therevealer.org. And you can purchase a copy of The Pornography Wars online now. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be joined by three experts of America. American Catholicism to discuss the Revealer's Catholic Horror series that compares Catholic horror films and novels like The Exorcist to real-life horrors committed by the Catholic Church. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.